Well, we're continuing in our series in the mornings in Exodus, and this morning we're in Exodus 15, considering the last verses of Exodus 15, 22 through to 27. But to give us a bit of context of where we are in Exodus, we're going to read from Exodus 15, verse 19. Exodus 15, verse 19, through to the end of the chapter. That's on page 57, if you're using one of the church Bibles. So Moses and the whole people have been singing to the Lord. And we break in at verse 19. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water. And the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, palm trees and they encamped there by the water. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Please do turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. If you're turning there, let me pray once more. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, remind us of your goodness of your powerful works of salvation, that we might respond to you as we ought. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today here in this place and many uh, places across the nation, we have, as a nation, sought to remember. We have solemnly brought to mind the Great War and many other subsequent wars. We have no doubt each one of us personally reflected upon these wars and the great cost in human life. And on this day of remembrance, and maybe particularly this day of remembrance, 100 years ago, almost to the moment of the centenary, of, of the armistice rather, in 1918, we cannot, I think, escape the importance of remembrance. For us to remember is, I suppose, to set ourselves in a context. We recognize that we are not purely individuals. We are not islands. But we are those who live in a country with a context, with a history. 
If we're British, then we, I suppose, can no more escape that history than we can escape who we are. Indeed, the, the same can be said of many countries across the world. They remember their past, and it shapes their present and future. I suppose, for example, in countries that were formerly a part of the British Empire, they often have celebrations for their Independence Day. Such celebrations are obviously very different in tone than a Remembrance Day. But they function in a similar way. They speak about the past and then and how that past shapes the present identity of the individual and of the nation. And for God's people back in the days of Moses and for God's people today, remembering is in, was incredibly important. And of course, I suppose that's why the whole book of Exodus was written. It was written along with the other first five books of the Bible for God's people as they prepared to enter into, pro- into the promised land that they might know who their God is and that they might respond to him correctly in the way he commanded. In other words, it was written that they might remember and that they might live in light of what they have remembered. But the problem was and is, will we remember? Will we remember who God is and what he has done for us in the good news of Jesus Christ? And will we let that shape our actions and responses in the present? Well, as we look at these verses in Exodus 15, we might ask then, well, what should the people of God be remembering about their God and what he's done? Well, if you've been here throughout our series in Exodus, you will have seen that there has been much for God's people to remember about their God. It was not a quiet few months. No, it's been busy. The Lord, their God, had heard their cries in slavery. And in light of his promises to their forefather Abraham, he had acted. He had rescued his people from slavery. And he'd done so remarkably, hadn't he? He had brought them out of Egypt with his mighty hand. He does so publicly and clearly. No casual bystander on holiday, on a holiday in the, the Nile Delta all those years ago, would have any doubt that the God of Moses had done these things. The Egyptians had been defeated resoundly. And it's clear in all of this, then, that the Lord God is God. He is the true and living God. He is no figment of the imagination. He is the one who rules over all, even over Pharaoh. Well, the salvation of the people from slavery was brought to completion in the remarkable event at the Red Sea, which we've been considering over these past weeks. There the Lord destroys the Egyptians, lays waste to them, and saves his people through the water. This mighty act of deliverance, it it captured the people's imaginations that we saw last week as they, they joined with Moses in song in the opening verses of Exodus 15. They praise and rejoice in the Lord. Indeed, in that wonderful picture in verses 20 and 21, it captures the imagination of Miriam and the women. They go out dancing with their tambourines. Speaking of the Lord who has triumphed gloriously, how he has defeated the horse and his rider. 
The Lord has done mighty things for this people. But the question is, of course, will they keep remembering? Or will they let the immediate concerns of the day blind them to who their Lord is and what he has done? Well, as we come to look at these verses, we'll see firstly in verses 22 to 25 that we are to trust and not grumble in times of testing. Trust, don't grumble in times of testing. So the people, from the context we know, have sung the praise of the Lord. The women have been out dancing with their tambourines and singing God's praise. They have rejoiced in his goodness to them in saving them from Egypt. Now they move on from that great act of deliverance. And where do they move? Verse 22, well, they move into the wilderness. They move into the desert. And as someone fairly averse to hot weather and all that it brings, I have no first-hand experience whatsoever of the desert, and I am in no rush to gain any. And, being, uh, and maybe you do. Maybe you have been to uh, a lovely hot place in Egypt or some other country, maybe parts of Africa, I don't know. Maybe you've been to a desert in another country, uh, and you can... Uh, you, you could tell us after the service what a desert is like. But I suppose it doesn't take much imagination for us to think what a desert would be like. Maybe you've seen movies and you've seen Lawrence of Arabia. We think of the dryness. You think of the oppressive heat, the blinding sun. If we were ever in such a situation, we'd know that the only way to survive in the first instance is to drink lots of water to keep ourselves hydrated. If we didn't have a plentiful and steady supply of water, we would be in serious trouble. And that's the situation that the people of God find themselves in in these verses. They have set out from the great victory and they've gone into the wilderness, but they've been unable to find water for three days. One commentator, who's, when, he, when he wrote about this passage, suggests that the issue of water presents itself in these verses before food, because it's harder to transport water. So you think about that, it's quite, quite hard to transport lots and lots of water, particularly back then when they, they didn't have trucks that you could put big canisters of water on. No doubt their supplies were therefore diminishing. This is a large group of people. Think about how much water would be required to keep them going. They were in desperate need of water and we should remember that this is therefore a serious issue. This isn't light. This isn't nothing. They needed water. It's not a minor concern. And we can imagine, I suppose, the worries that might be going through the minds of these people. How will we drink? How will our children drink? Will they die in our arms in the desert? But all must have seemed well, of course, when they arrived a place of water in the desert. But the water, as we find in verse 23, was of no use to them. It was bitter. So the place of this bitter water is called bitterness. If you notice in your footnote, if you've got an ESV Bible, that's what this word mara means, bitterness. It's just all there three times in the verse. They come to bitterness. They couldn't drink the water of bitterness because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named bitterness. Real emphasis there, isn't there? What a kick in the teeth this must have been for God's people. 
the thing they needed was there in front of them. They could see it, the water. But it was of no use to them. They were in a desperate situation. What will they do? Well, what they do is, in light of what we know about the people, not entirely surprising. They grumble. Verse 24, they moan. They complain. And although you might have some sympathy with these people, their response is all wrong. Because what they have done is that they have forgotten. They have forgotten who their God is. They seem to not have remembered that the Lord has delivered them from Egypt. He has delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh with his mighty hand. If he saved them then and guided them by his presence through the wilderness thus far, will he let them die of dehydration in the desert? Of course not. Grumbling is clearly not the right response to such difficulty. What they should have been doing is what Moses does in verse 25. He doesn't grumble to the Lord. He doesn't pass the grumble up the chain of command. He doesn't moan or complain. Instead, he trusts the Lord. And this trust is embodied, isn't it, in his prayer. For that is what prayer is. If you come to a prayer meeting on Thursday night, you, that's what you're doing. You're actively trusting. Prayer is a manifestation of faith of our reliance, our trust in the Lord. And in light of this prayer being made, the Lord miraculously answers and makes the water drinkable, makes it sweet so they can drink it. And the point seems very clear then, isn't it, that that trust, not grumbling, is the response that we must have as we face hard times and crisis. This situation arises as the Lord tests his people, verse 25. This is a key theme for for the next few chapters. The Lord is putting his people in a situation where their faith is being tested. In light of this dangerous situation, what they should all be doing is what Moses does. They should be trusting. That is the correct answer to the test. But they are grumbling. They shouldn't be letting an immediate crisis get in the way of their trust in the Lord. And as we easily, and as we see the people of Israel so easily forget their Lord and so easily fail in their test of faith, I think it's a a salutary warning to us today. For when we face a crisis, when we are faced with a clear and present danger, how do we react? Such crises, of course, can vary. They can be personal. Maybe a worrying diagnosis. Perhaps. Or maybe it's something that faces the whole church family here. Or the church at large in our land. In each case, the desired response is always trust. Trust in the Lord. Maybe a case in point is the news this week from the Scottish government. We are planning to put in place radical changes to education in Scotland that will make life very difficult for Christian parents and Christian teachers. We should, as Christians, be worried about this. 
We should find it troubling. But we should never grumble to God. We should not say to God, why have you done this? As if we knew better. As if we deserve better. We shouldn't say to the Lord, you know, you've got your providential rule of the whole world wrong. We don't know why the Lord is allowing these things to happen, but it should, at the very least, it should cross our minds that this is an opportunity for us to trust. To trust in the Lord and His rule. And not to complain or grumble. After all, we can think of countless situations across the world where Christian people are facing much worse. We can hardly expect or believe that we have a right to a better path. Although these things are hard and difficult and make us very sad, we must trust whatever the crisis is, whether it be individual or personal or church-wide, we are to trust and we are to pray. We are to call on Him. We are to call on Him to help. To, if it be in His will, deliver us from these things. And if not, that the Lord would strengthen us, that we might be willing and able to bear the shame that our culture throws at us. That we might be willing and able to stand graciously for Jesus Christ in our world. So when crisis comes, we mustn't grumble. We must trust. But what is, but is there a more detailed picture for the outworking of our trust in Christ? Is it just seen in a life of prayer or is there something more to trusting in God than that? Well, as we move on in our verses, we see in verses 25 and 26 that we are called to trust and obey, for that is the way to life. Trust and obey is the way to life. Well, as we see in uh, verse 25, the test is clearly upon God's people. They have, I think, fallen short of what is expected of them. They haven't trusted. Instead, they have grumbled. So now the Lord graciously sets before them how they ought to respond to the Lord. Not just in a crisis, but more generally. I suppose you might say that the Lord kindly takes this failure as a teaching opportunity to show what the true standard of living as one of his people is. And maybe you've experienced something like this before, maybe in school or in your workplace where you've not quite done what you should have done and your teacher or your boss takes it as an opportunity to highlight what you should be doing, to point you in the right direction going forwards. Well, we see in these verses, in verses 25 to 26, that the Lord wants his people to know what they are to do, what living as his people means for them. And if our first verse points to trust in the Lord in the midst of crisis, these verses show us the need for obedience to the Lord. This is very clear in verse 26, isn't it? The people were to diligently listen to the voice of the Lord. They were to do what was right in his eyes. They were to give ear to his commandments, keep all his statutes. 
Now, in the narrative of Exodus, it's worth remembering that the law is yet to come. It's not yet been given to God's people. That comes in a few chapters in Exodus chapter 20. But clearly, God's people are being told what they are to do with any command they receive from the Lord, past, present, or future. They are to obey. They are to do what he says. But it's also clear, isn't it, what will happen if they obey as they ought to. They will receive, they will not receive, rather, the diseases the Egyptians received as the Lord took his people out of Egypt. In other words, they will receive a blessing from the Lord. And this blessing is conditional upon their obedience. We see this very clearly in verse 26. It's one of those statements of, if this, then that. If they obey, then they won't receive the diseases. They will, I suppose, receive blessing, if we were to put it positively. And we have to assume also that if they fail to obey, then they will ultimately receive all the Egyptians received. They too will be those who feel the curse of the Lord and his covenant. And this idea of covenant curse it is developed further in the first five books of, of the Bible. In the book in, of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, as God's people waited to enter into the promised land, it was made abundantly clear to them that if they did not obey the covenant commands of the law of God, then they would experience the curses listed in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And sadly, as you look through the Old Testament, you have to follow the, the narrative of God's people. We see God's people fail and fail and fail again. They do not keep the law as they ought to. Time and again, we hear the Lord's people turning from the Lord or being led away from the Lord into all manner of disobedience. They fail to listen to the word of the Lord. They fail to give ear to the Lord's commands. Although the Lord in his grace shows them a tremendous amount of patience, the curses do eventually fall. Judah and Israel are sent into exile. And they only are partially restored. It is not full restoration at the end of the Old Testament narrative. It is a bleak picture in many ways. Now, Today, we are not under the same covenant administration or arrangements as Israel were in the Old Testament. We are not Israelites. But God's law, his moral will, the Creator's instructions, which were made known in the Old Covenant law, and by which we are called to live by, they haven't changed. The Lord still requires complete obedience to his law today. And like God's Old Testament people, we too as Christians know how far short we fall of God's perfect standard. What one of us can say that this past week we have kept the Lord's law as we ought to. Which one of us has diligently listened to the voice of the Lord? Which one of us has loved the Lord with all that is within us and loved our neighbors as ourselves? The Lord calls for complete obedience and we fail in this time and time again. Well, what then can we do? Is it just a matter of trying harder? Girding ourselves up, upping our game? Well, sadly not, for Scripture is clear that 
that we cannot keep the law the way we should. But thanks be to God that we know someone who has kept the law, who has kept all the Lord's statutes, for we know Christ. And if we trust in him, the penalty for our failure to keep the law, the penalty for disobedience is dealt with. And through the work of Christ on the cross, the blessings of Christ's perfect obedience are showered upon us. There is therefore no legal penalty, no covenant curse for all those who are united to Christ by faith. We have been saved by obedience, just not our own. But we have been saved by Christ's. Well, of course, that doesn't mean that we today are are able to ignore the command to obey. Far from it. We are still called to obey the Lord, aren't we? This is clear throughout the New Testament. We are called to trust and obey as God's people, for this is the path that is set before us, just as it was the path set before God's people in Exodus 15. We no longer face the curse of the law, but we are still called to obey it. This is what God's people are to do. If you trust in God, you will seek to obey. You will listen to the voice of the Lord. You will seek to live right. You will listen to his commandments. You will keep his law. That is what is clear in this verse for God's people back then. And that is what is true for God's people today. Christ bore the curse of the law and gives us the blessings of his obedience. But he still calls us to turn from sin and to obey him. And he has wonderfully given us his spirit that we might be strengthened and empowered and helped to ever increasingly obey the law of the Lord. So we can say that trust in Christ goes hand in hand with obeying him as Lord. Obedience doesn't save us. We must never say that. But it's a natural outworking of our faith in him. Obedience isn't faith. And we shouldn't confuse them, but it flows from it and goes hand in hand with it. It is therefore a key test of our faith. Just as trusting in the face of a crisis tests our faith, so does our obedience in the midst of crisis. And when there is no storm in the horizon, if our faith is genuine, we'll be those who want to obey, who want to follow the path set before us, by our Lord Jesus Christ. As Christian people, we've been saved and we are called in Christ to obey as the way of life and to life. We are, as the old song says, to trust and obey for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus. And we are given good reason to trust and obey the Lord. As we turn to our final heading in verse 27, where we see that we are to trust the one who by grace makes ample provision. Trust the one who by grace makes ample provision. Now, in light of the fact that the people had failed their test of faith in these verses, we might think, I suppose, because of the condition set out in verse 26, that what might happen next is that the people would experience diseases of some sort. Or that they would experience some punishment or or castigation. 
or at least a telling off of some sort. That's, of course, what happens to us when we fall short in many walks of life. Our bosses reprimand, our parents tell us off. But in this instance, we see the experience of the Lord's people to be against what we might expect. They had grumbled, showing that they didn't trust the Lord. But the Lord isn't giving up on them, is he, in verse 27? He has shown them kindly what it looks like to be one of his people in verse 26. And now we see that the Lord will again provide what they most desperately need. They need water. In verse 25, we see that the water was turned sweet, but now we see that the Lord provides generously. As they come to this place, Elam, they find plentiful water, don't they? Much more than would have been available at Mara. There's also shelter in the form of these 70 palm trees. How easy it is for us to forget that in a, in a gloomy and dark land at times at the moment. But in the midst of the desert, you need shelter. As the sun beats down on you, you need shelter from the sun. And I suppose these 70 palm trees would have provided that. The Lord has provided for his people all that they need. And he's done so not because they've passed the test or because they've earned this blessing, but because the Lord in his grace has extended them this provision. And wonderfully, that is how God works. Despite our shortcomings, despite our failures, our making mistake after mistake, the Lord shows grace to his people. He makes more than ample provision for them. And what motivation that must have been for God's people as the Lord set before them how they were to follow his law, to know that the one who commands your obedience is the one who makes ample provision for you is a wonderful motivation to obey, isn't it? As we seek to obey our Lord, we too have good reason to do so, for we know that we are amply provided for in Christ. Our sins are washed away. We are clothed in his righteousness. We have the wonderful hope of better things to come, of eternal life set before us. We no longer sit under the curse and we are free to obey the law by the power of the Spirit. What good reason then to seek and follow our Lord. We have been shown patience and kindness beyond what we can imagine. And we have received in Christ a wonderful salvation that we could never imagine by ourselves. So as we Today, remember the fallen in battle. We must also be those who remember the great works of salvation accomplished for us in Christ. We must remember all that we have in him, the ample provision, the glorious salvation of his marvelous work. We must remember the mercy shown to us as sinners. And we must be those who now respond as we are called to. We are called to faith in Christ, as those people were called to faith in God in the wilderness. And we are called to renewed and empowered obedience in Christ, enabled by the Spirit. So let us do just that. Let us seek to, in Christ, obey the Lord and trust in Him, whatever the world may throw at us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the midst of 
confusing times of crisis upon crisis, of worry and concern, in many different ways for many of us. Help us be those who trust in you. Help us be those who trust in Christ. Help us, those then, be a pr- help us then be a praying people. Help us also to be an obedient people, rejoicing that our failure to obey is not counted against us in Christ. So help us in gladness, in thankfulness, in gratitude to seek to obey you all the days of our life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.